there is still a useful functional functioning distinction, I think, between, oh, I am engaging in fantasy now and, oh, now I'm living my real life. Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Kurt Anderson is author of several best-selling books, including Evil Geniuses, True Believers, and Fantasyland, our topic for today. He co-founded the stunningly brilliant Spy Magazine and co-created and hosted Studio 360, a Peabody Award-winning public radio show and podcast about art and pop culture that aired from 2000 to 2020. Kurt, welcome to The Filter. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. I'm going to begin our discussion with an observation before even listening to your book, Fantasyland. And I heard it on Audible, by the way, and loved your narration. I was already sympathetic to the basic idea that Americans like their make-believe worlds and face. Most everyone thinks they are the rational ones and everyone else is a little bit affected, and I'm no exception to that rule. I thought I was well aware of all the ways in which Americans embrace fantasy in one form or another, but after listening to your book, I realized just how deeply we are intertwined with the fantasy genre at large in ways that seem endless and much deeper than I had considered. Without going into too much detail in any one aspect yet, I'm wondering if you could start us out with an overview of all the ways in which Americans have constructed imaginary worlds to live in. Yeah, I don't know if I can do all the ways, but some of the significant ways that we were doing, we being, which is to say the the European settlers from the very beginning, at the beginning of the 17th century, As I tell the story, the English people who came here were of two basic types. Those who came, the pilgrims, the Puritans in in Massachusetts in the Northeast, who were coming here to create a new Jerusalem, to wait for the second coming of Jesus and be rid of the horrible, heretical urban life in which they found themselves in England and then the Netherlands. They were religious and they were a kind of extreme spin-off of an extreme spin-off of this new, rather extreme Protestant religion. So that was them, which is to say, in my view, driven by, in addition to a kind of utopianism, which in some cases, not all cases, is, is, is a form of fantasy, certainly driven by what I take to be a religious fantasy. Then there were the, the, the settlers in Virginia who had been led to believe and advertised to, as all the early settlers in America, were advertised to come here. It's a land of plenty. It's wonderful. And by the way, there's also gold for the plucking and and silver. And that's what the settlers in Virginia were here for, figuring they would find gold and get rich overnight. So the first European settlers, again, attracted to the new world by the first global advertising campaign, came here with their respective fantastical aspirations And that began things. So certainly religion and a place where new religions and religions so evolved from their beginnings, they became effectively new religions, sprang up like crazy all over America, free to do so. Uh, the, The kind of entrepreneurial spirit, if I can create anything and I can be anybody and I can do anything I want here and create a new identity, that was part of the 
founding American predilection for invention. I mean, not only fantasy may be too strong for what all of those, but certainly fantasy could be part of that as well. Uh, pseudoscience took off here even more than it was taking off in Europe at the time during the, especially the 19th century. Once Americans, and by that point, the United States, people in the United States were inventing essentially modern pop culture and entertainment. That became a kind of form of immersive fantasy at which Americans excelled, both as creators and consumers. And then, of course, television before long and radio and all the rest. So mix all of that up. We are not unique, Americans, in our love of weakness for the fantastical and the untrue and the excitingly untrue. But we had always had a special knack for weakness for all of those things that made us different than the rest of what was used to be called the civilized world is today called the developed or rich world. And we are more so than ever. And, and that's really the, that's really the story I tell of, of how that was in our kind of national character and our national bloodstream for hundreds of years. And in my telling of the story in the last 50 years, a kind of metastasized a bit out of control and took over the the way that too many people saw the world in general. I mean, none of us are perfect, you know, rationalists or perfect empiricists or, and nor I think do we probably want to be, but the degree to which believing in the untrue and believing whatever I want because I'm an American or I'm me, that kind of ultra individualism, another part of the American character, I would say grew out of control in a kind of epistemological sense, in in, in, this, in in a kind of general agreement on these are the facts, these are the hunches, these are the beliefs, these are the delusions. I mean, that used to be that we've always had people of different religious beliefs and so on and so forth. But there used to be, until the last few decades, a set of facts that were widely and broadly shared, uncontroversially in America, and more and more and more over the last few decades that has ceased to be the case. I, I want to get into that idea about the breakdown of a core reality as something that everybody can refer to. But before we do that, I just want to continue down this road a little bit more. You use the term in the book, fantasy industrial complex. I don't know if you coined that. It's a wonderful term. I like to, I like to think so. <laughs> um, there's just so much of that once you start to look at that in the current world from, you know, from fantasy football to the vast amounts of fiction that people consume through television and in other ways, people fantasizing about the lottery that they're playing and the good luck that it'll bring that. And then once you start to kind of scratch down that, that way, you just seem to keep going and going and you get to Disneyland and you get to all the ways in which we've created created basically virtual worlds in which to live. And I find that one of the interesting things that, that begins to happen as you go down that particular rabbit hole is you get to a place where it's not always clear where something is a fantasy and where something is a simulation and where something is an homage to something else. Uh, you know, like take Las Vegas. What is Las Vegas? Well, I mean, Las Vegas is such an extreme and great example of that because, again, it's it, and, and and by the way, it's one of those things like so many of the entertainment simulations, games, cosplays that I talk about in the book, which in and of themselves aren't so terrible or malign or ruining us, 
But in this step back, as I try to do in this book and, and look at the whole realm of the blurring of the lines between real and fake and fiction and reality and all the rest, they become kind of part of the whole problem in which we cease to distinguish between the, the solid and the that which melts into air. Las Vegas, I mean, it was created as a work of entertainment, as this large-scale place where from the beginning, the casinos and everything about it meant to attract tourists were references initially to the Old West, which made sense, of course, in Southern Nevada to do, but then to whatever, to to outer space, to Roman antiquity, to New York, New York. And so it was a place where fakery and, and kind of entertaining, if not plausible fakery, was the whole physical idea of the place. And of course, its business was based on magical thinking, which is to say, I can win. I, can, I, I will win at this blackjack game or this, this slot machine. And of course, some do, most don't. That's why it's a business. And so it was the combination of this place about magical thinking in the gambling sense, and then a kind of fantastical make-believe in its physical sense. And then more generally, when it was the only place in the United States where you could gamble legally, casino, do casino gambling, added all the other appurtenances of fantasy that it had of songs and dances and magic and all the rest. So it became, in a certain way, and I, I, before I ever wrote Fantasyland, I went out to Las Vegas for a while and wrote a whole Time Magazine cover story about it in the 90s, and argued in that that it was kind of the distilled expression of a certain kind of modern America in all of those ways that I'm talking about. Moving on from Las Vegas, there's another town, another kind of synthetic town that you mention in the book. I think your quote is that if I had to move to Florida, I might choose to move to celebration. What is celebration? And then what is celebration? Yeah, uh, celebration, capital C, is the little town adjacent to Disney World, this vast property that the Disney company bought in the 1960s to, in which to build Disney World before Dis they simply made it a, a set of giant theme parks, which is, of course, what it became. It was going to be this Walt Disney's vision of a, of a whole new futuristic, perfect city. It was a real ur visionary urbanist idea. He died. They kept building it. It didn't become that. But then as a kind of late in the game, 1980s, 90s realization of a piece of that dream of building a new city, as a real estate development, the Disney Company hired skillful architects and design urban planners to create from scratch a town that was built before basically World War II, it was finished by around the 1940s. They're still during the nostalgic good old days or the good old days about which we became nostalgic subsequently. And that's what they built. It wasn't all that. They, they had some architects build things that were clearly modern, but basically it was to take what Disneyland had done with Main Street USA from its beginnings in 1955 and use that idea, a nice little old-fashioned, perfect, not exactly New England, not exactly Midwestern, but American small town. And that's what they built from scratch. And now thousands and thousands of people live there. And it was built overnight to be this sort of real-life dream world. And it is not a piece of Disney World. However, they do have fake snow and Christmas carols at Christmas and fake leaves falling this time of year. And so there is a bit of Disney phantasmagoria going on in celebration. 
but it's a town. And again, I mean, it's it's strange. But as I said, as you quoted me, I, I could I would rather live there than the average brand new housing development in Florida. No question. What we've got here to some extent is a tension or at least a kind of a dual nature to these projects. On the one hand, they are fictions. They're fantasy lands in which you pretend to live in a world in which you don't. You pretend to live in a world in which trees fall from the sky and fall, but you're in Florida, so they don't. But then on the other hand, it is a, a, a real place with real people living their lives, going about their business. And often these kind of retro things can be quite nice. I haven't been to Celebration. I have been to one of the things you mentioned in the book, Camden Yards in Baltimore, which is a kind of a retro ballpark. And it's lovely. It's a wonderful experience to go see a game there. Maybe wondering if you could try to disentangle or retangle the complexities between spaces that are kind of simulacra versus ones that are just building on the past or, you know, as I've said, playing homage to the past styles and what was good about the past. Well, both Celebration and Camden Yards and all that is called new urbanism come out of a you know, set of movements or a single movement, really, from the 1970s and 80s. And there are two big aspects of it, and they do need to be disentangled, I think. One is the the physical replication of style by using wood and brick and masonry, let's say, instead of steel and glass and having pitched roof houses instead of flat roof houses or having authentic reproduction old buildings rather than bad, poorly done, clumsy, crazy, mixed up pastiches of old style. So it's that. It's the stylistic part. Then, in terms of how neighborhoods and new towns and the rest can be built, there are these deeper questions that new urbanism tries to deal with, and I think deal with well and smartly, personally, which is creating neighborhoods and towns that are more about pedestrians and dense living rather than cars and everybody on half an acre and apart. So there's that, there's let's recover the lost art of making charming, comfortable, civilized communities. There's that. And then there's this separate issue, which is often conflated with the other of, let's build little cottages just like they used to look 80 years ago. Now, and there's always been, especially in the United States, revival of old styles, you know, colonial houses, most colonial quote unquote houses today, were built from 1880 to 1940, right? I mean, it wasn't during colonial times. So that was a revival. And they all seem like old houses now. So there has always been in our culture and in housing, for instance, a nostalgia, a retro desire for, oh, I like the way things used to look. So there's that. But this other deeper thing, which which is which ought to be separated, I think, is, wait, there are good things about the past that we oughtn't to throw out. And so trying to disentangle all of those is is a challenge. In, in my you know newer book, Evil Geniuses, I, I talk about how that's an important challenge in politics, that just because something was the way it was in the United States of America in 1955, let's say, doesn't mean it was either good or bad. You know, segregation, more ferocious racism, more ferocious sexism, bad a fairer economy where people shared the wealth more and we had effective antitrust and on and on, good. So it, it's that question always of looking at history, not just as, oh, it's it, it's all terrible what happened in the past, 
and it's all a fantasy to imagine you can reproduce it, to the lessons of history, right? That, that are not necessarily just fictional uh, decorations. As we're talking here about all the ways in which America is kind of almost based on fantasy, to what extent do you think that whatever else you might say about it, there are certain advantages to fantastical thinking evolutionarily on the, at the level of the individual or at the level of society? Well, I don't know about advantages. I think there probably are some evolutionary or human tendencies toward explanation. And so why did it rain? Why does it rain then? You know, who put the stars up there? All the, you know, so people, humans go for explanations for those. And and sometimes explanations that, or usually that give them a sense of comfort and there's a kind of coherence to their existence and experience. And, And many of those explanations, most of them, a lot of them, as time passes, look fantastical. Once we have scientific understandings of all of those questions, the previous religious, spiritual, animistic, whatever ones look fantastical. So we all want explanations, and some cultures move beyond the fantastical, or what now look like, and I believe are, fantastical explanations of reality into more scientific ones, and, and reason, ones based on reason and rationality and so forth. In a different way, in a shorter term way, I do think that Americans knack for imagination and even bordering on fantastical dreams or being fantastical dreams isn't altogether bad. It is what accounts for so much of the good invention and, and building of the new and and uh, we can build cities here in the prairie or, or we can invent semiconductors or whatever it is. I, you know, I think that part of the American character channeled properly or with grown-ups still in charge can lead to to good things as well. So I wouldn't say it's evolutionary, but it is not all bad. It is part of the germ and and wellspring of of invention and creativity, and that that can be good. I think certainly that the American cultural export complex, so to speak, owes a lot to our willingness to live in those kind of make-believe places or fantasy places. We're very good at creating those kinds of worlds. In fact, I'd say that of all the nations, only America and for some reason Japan seem to be the dominant ones in terms of exporting culture. And probably that has a lot to do with their comfort of spending lots of time in imaginary worlds. Yes. Although, and I've spent some time in Japan and talked to Japanese about this. And I do think that there is still, and this is a a gross generalization, but in Japan, there is still a useful functional functioning distinction, I think, between, oh, I am engaging in fantasy now, and oh, now I'm living my real life. I think that blurring to a dangerous extent that I argue in fantasy land has befallen America has not yet befallen the Japanese culture to the same extent. But I agree with you about that. And, And it's also interesting that Japanese people I've talked to talk about how a major part of Japan's future economically is as being the world's largest theme park, right? That tourists from all over the world will come to this singular place, unlike the rest of the world, to experience its reality as a kind of fantasy, you know? We've touched now on some of the 
potential upsides and you've, you've referenced, but we haven't gone much into the negative side of living in a fantasy land or, you know, being a culture that is wrapped up in fantasy. And before we kind of get into that, I want to say that there's a certain amount of discomfort I have with a number of the examples in your book and a number of the ways in which we look at science and say, you know, looking back retrospectively, oh, these, you know, this was fantasy, this is crazy. A lot of the science of yesterday was straight science, whether it was phrenology or whatever else it was, these were legitimate. There was scientific racism and it was scientific racism. It, it wasn't um, based on anything other than the same methods we use today, just misapplied or wrong or coming to bad conclusions. And as we, you know, look around and we look at people who are making claims today that seem fantastical to us, I think that we need to be careful about which ones of the things that we are certain about that someone is a science denier for not believing the science that we believe, that that may be a temporary thing. And what we thought was true science now, and there have been a number of books about kind of the decay in knowledge um, and the way in which, you know, what we think now is probably going to turn out we're wrong, that, you know, that, that we're in this place here where I think it is right and appropriate to look at certain beliefs and say, boy, boy, that certainly looks crazy. But then to hold up the science of today and say, this is unassailably true and anybody who questions it is local, that's another thing, right? Indeed. And if we all shared the scientific, the premises of science and the scientific method, that it's a provisional search for the truth and at any one moment we have not arrived there, then absolutely. And that's the problem, not uniquely, but so dangerously, I think, in the United States, is the way in which science and belief in science or not has become both part of a primitive religion, in my view, and has been politicized. And the example, I think, of biological evolution and was Darwin correct or not, however much evolutionary biology has evolved, so to speak, and been adapted over the years, that's true. And as soon as you have a whole set of religious believers, fairly uniquely in this country, in the developed world, saying, no, it's not, it's this thing, life was created 6,000 years ago, that becomes a problem. But it doesn't become a real problem, a huge problem for me that I would care about that much until and unless, as it has been in the United States, politicized. So it extends to things like global warming. And again, whatever the reality of global warming is, there is a scientific consensus about global warming. Whatever the correct ways to deal with it are, sure, we can argue about those. There is no one correct way. And as soon as you have a political party, as we now do, that really is for different kinds of reasons. In one case, in the case of evolution, purely religious reasons. In the other case of global warming, purely financial reasons, but that they then come together in a coalition, a kind of anti-science coalition it becomes a problem and then it leads to people like me, I suppose, saying that science is right, we know the truth, you people are screwy and wrong, unfortunately. But the problem is they are screwy and wrong and we are truer. I think that's an interesting way to put it. And the example you used of, of global warming, I find particularly interesting. I think you used the phrase at one point of, of like weaponized science or something like that in there in the political context. We've created these beliefs that one can't have a rational discussion about, from my opinion. Some years back, I did a from scratch analysis of the temperature data for global warming. 
I came away unconvinced by that particular data, though open to more discussions about it and open to lots of discussions about it. But that was a very hard thing to do because I think that, and I believe it's Eric Weinstein has talked about this a lot, how the kind of team science will plant their flag on a particular idea, whether it's global warming as in, you know, man-made catastrophic global warming or, you know, or a particular vision of evolution. And then because they spend so much time holding back or battling people who have beliefs that are not really based in a scientific approach to it, they become dogmatic and they defend it even in ways that are political, weaponized. They say things like in terms of global warming, 97% of scientists agree this, which to me is kind of a double fantasy because on the one hand, when you dig into that number, it's not what it appears to be. And then also because scientific consensus is not an argument per se. But I'm wondering if you just comment on the ways in which it has become kind of impossible to have a rational conversation about things when it seems like one side has dug into perhaps an unreality and the other side is maybe too stringently sticking to a particular vision and discounting any challenges or complexities. It is a problem, but we do have to avoid the both sidesism. There is an asymmetrical relationship between the two sides here. As you say, one is based on, you didn't use the word fiction, but I would say a series of fictions and just belief. And one is based on a too unaccommodating, inflexible uh, commitment to, to, to science at a particular moment, because look at these people over here. We have to put a stop to that. So that's unfortunate. There's no question. And that's the problem. When things become, frankly, in a certain way, shouldn't become political football shouldn't be politicized, do, because it becomes, unfortunately, this binary barricade operation, and you got to be on one side or the other of the barricade. Now, yes, you can be a, a, a kind of, well, maybe not, maybe, oh, as you say, you know, scientific consensus isn't all you think, and but then you're looked at as a as a quizzling and, and betrayer of science if you're on that side of the barricade, and that's unfortunate. I, I grant that. Going further down that line, there's a lot in your book about religion in general, and then about the changeover from Americans being highly religious to in some ways being spiritual, but not necessarily committed to one of the traditional religious structures that we have. Blending that with politics, I'm wondering, because your book mentioned Marianne Williamson uh, in it, this was in uh, 2017, What do you make of that approach that kind of fuses a political agenda with a spiritual agenda? Where where does that fit in the continuum of kind of science and fantasy? Well, as I said, uh, none of us are pure rationalists, nor do we necessarily need or want to be, nor, nor certainly ought we to demand that people on our side of the political spectrum forswear spiritual feeling or belief or religious feeling or belief. To the degree that there are people on my lefter than righter side of things politically who have religious and or spiritual beliefs of various kinds, whether it's Marianne Williamson or Joe Biden, 
I'm fine. And frankly, the more the better. I, I don't think it's a good thing. An overwhelming percentage of people without conventional religious beliefs are liberals. So there's that, and that's part of the coalition politically. But I think it is just, it's both untrue and strategically, tactically unwise for the Democratic Party to become identified as the political party of no, the anti-religion party. Whether or not as a, you know, in a Marianne Williamsonian way, a kind of, you know, new agey uh, spiritual approach to the world can be fused with uh, liberal politics. Sure, it can, but yet yeah, I would argue politics can do and governing and government can do certain things. What's it got to do with that, really? Just as, frankly, in, in so many ways, even though systemic racism is a giant problem in America, obviously, there's only so much the federal government can do to root it out. We can set up systems and forms of payment and preferences and all kinds of things that are fine to do to redress the problems of slavery and Jim Crow and the rest. But we cannot, except over the long term and person by person, root out wrong beliefs, which is to say racism or sexism in people. Similarly, I'm fine for people in the political sphere to have spiritual or religious approaches to the world that they sometimes bring to bear in their rhetoric or talking about the world. But it, it doesn't really have anything to do or very much to do with governing and politics is, I guess, my answer to that. I think for me, and you mentioned in the book, the ways in which fantasies can go from being something that doesn't really affect you, something that's fun, something that's a quirky personal belief, to something that becomes political or malignant or really dangerous. And and for me, over the last four years or so, perhaps the most dangerous and destructive fantasy that I've seen arise is that we're a nation full of Nazis. And this is now a fairly common belief. You have Cusack saying that, John Cusack, the actor, saying that 30% of all Americans are Nazis. And I don't think that that's a, an extreme opinion. The projection of America as this extraordinarily overrun with Nazis, white supremacist place, and kind of the founding myth of that of the last four years for that, you know, that Trump had said that there are good people on both sides, that, you know, that hoax and that fiction that we're living in this kind of a, a nation, I, I find particularly destructive. And I'm very concerned about the ways in which that has been adopted. I wonder if you have any, if you agree, and if you, you know, your thoughts are, because you did bring that up as a, you know, as a projection. I, I wouldn't call it a hoax for starters, I would call it arguably an exaggeration. And I and, and I look at all, all of the numbers that, oh, this many, everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist. I don't believe that. Of course, then we get into whole definitional arguments about what is racist and are you an anti-racist or just a non-racist and so forth. But in simple terms, nor I neither think that 30% of Americans are Nazis, nor that 48% are racists in a meaningful way. I don't. But do I think that's the most dangerous fantasy the last four years? No. And I think it's, I would say, you know, the fantasies that give rise to that as a counterreaction, which is to say we must save America for the whites, which is a real thing. And I don't know if it's 5% or somewhere between 10% and 
30% of Americans who are in some measure white supremacists. And we can argue about the number and, and I don't think it's huge and I don't call them Nazis, but there is a large amount of people feeling freer to say and behave in ugly racist ways today than there were not very many years ago. So it's a real thing. And, and so it's the degree to which it is a clear and present danger to our society, way of life and everything else is a question. And I am not as, you know, in the John Cusack camp, but I'm, I don't think I'm in your camp either. One of the things that makes me worry so much about this particular tendency is actually reading your book and also a previous guest book, Jesse Walker, who wrote The United States of Paranoia. And one of the things that you often see before war is that you begin to have a significant segment of the population that has paranoid fantasies about the other. Right. And I could understand how um, to your side, so to speak. I don't particularly see myself on one side or the other here, but I'm certainly not team blue or team red. But one of the things that, that you see there is that these people are uniquely awful and therefore we can do anything to them. And these people are plotting to do these terrible things to America or to us, to our group. These people are uniquely dangerous. That kind of rhetoric and those kind of um, almost always, but not always, paranoid conspiracy theories about the other are a good indication of breakdown or war to come. Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, one hopes and I don't believe we are yet at the level of Rwanda, for instance. But no, I agree with you. It's an unhealthy situation. I would say that, yes, there are paranoid conspiracy-minded paranoiacs on both sides of the left-right spectrum. There are, I believe, in an effectual way, more on the right right now. There's a history from the John Birch Society and before since of a meaningful, as I talked about in Fantasylandia, as a meaningful part of that political coalition. So yeah, it's bad when in a culture, some significant percentage of people take on that true, true, not just figurative demonization of the other side, that gets to be problematic. And, and we can spend all day, no, you did it first, you did it more, you did it first, you did it more. Again, I'm definitely team blue because among other reasons, <laughs> team red has done and is doing that uh, to, a, to a more extreme degree, even though I, of course, there are extreme and ridiculous and preposterous and ugly uh, versions of it on the other side. The theory I have about why this uh, is more of an issue now than perhaps in the past, though certainly if you go far back enough, you you know you see these kind of, of theories taking root as you demonstrate so well in your book, where people have diverged from reality in a significant way. But I think paradoxically, perhaps one of the problems we have now is that we have more access to more information than ever before. We have effectively an infinite amount of data and access to, you know, everything that's happening everywhere in the world. So whatever you come to as your prior about 
this is the world that I'm living in, you are going to be able to find instances that confirm that bias. Whereas perhaps in the past, if you wanted to believe a particular thing, you might have to spend many days, months, or years at the library digging through books in order to find it. Now, within 10 seconds, any belief I have, I could confirm with some anecdote or piece of data within, you know, within seconds with Google. No, absolutely. That, and, and again, I think if there were no internet, we would still would have had the 1960s and 70s and the kind of loosening grip on empirical reality that that began, but we would not have gotten to the dangerous state we are now because of exactly that reason that, you know, having your believing in your whatever, your, your, your stigmatized belief, your bit of quackery, whatever it is, your, your, your Nazi <laughs> fantasy, your, your, revolutionary fantasy, whatever it is, you, you were you were isolated by the nature of the way people live and the fact that there was no easy way to say, look, here's hundreds, here's thousands, here's hundreds of thousands of people who, like me, believe in this QAnon nonsense. And that's a problem. There are two sides to this, to this internet thing. Uh, there are wonderful sides, like us talking right now. And then there is this bad side of, of uh, uh, bad people talking right now. Uh, in the same way. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't have happened uh, absent this, you know, unprecedented communication means. And and maybe it'll all settle down and maybe in 30 years we'll look back and say, yeah, it just took us a while to figure out how to deal with this new condition. But it's a new condition. It is not, in my view, just like, oh, printing press, this, 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 and this is just the latest. Sure, it is, but it's also at least we, I think as we are now experiencing in exactly this kind of information or quote unquote information overload that we're now experiencing, a real problem that we have not learned how to deal with. I think the flip side of what I put out there about the information overload and finding whatever you want, and you see this now as a, as a backlash, is the attempt to limit those bad conversations and limit access to that bad data. And I think it's worth noting that if you kind of rewind the tape of history a bit to the point where you didn't have access to all of that data, then the data that you did have was very carefully curated by a handful of gatekeepers of the truth. And if you look at the history they have of presenting that truth, it doesn't always look so great. You talk a lot about journalism throughout the book. And I think you make to some extent the case that, you know, that we've gotten less unbiased or that we've gotten more biased over the years or less objective and less sort of focused on a sort of neutral discovery of truth. And I I don't necessarily see that myself. I think that when you had situations where you had gatekeepers, you had extraordinary abuses all throughout um, journalistic history, not just, you know, the yellow journalism, then everything was fine and then everything's bad again. But all throughout you had, you know, New York Times covering up for multiple dictators and and so forth. So certainly the, you know, one of the things that frightens me the most now is the idea that we're going to reestablish a gatekeeping class who will tell us the truth and we're going to shut up any conversations that are on the margins of that or not, you know, official. I understand that that there are scary aspects to that prospect, but does that, I, I simply don't accept that, well, we've got this new technology that allows every citizen of on earth to publish 
whatever they want to the rest of the citizens on earth. I mean, that's a new condition. And I'm, and I am not comfortable saying, despite, as you say, all of the problems with gatekeepers, qua gatekeepers, that I'm willing to just like, nope, we're letting it all go. Again, I, I think it's a false binary between it's either everybody can say anything, whether it's true or not, and nobody's, and it's a marketplace of ideas on a global basis, despite the fact of it being Facebook and Twitter or Google or whatever, or we're going to have a, a committee of 148 people chosen by whomever to be gatekeepers. You know, those aren't the choices, it seems to me, or, or, or if they are, then there's no good choice and I'll just check out. But, but I, 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 you know, I don't think, I don't think the solution to making a more orderly, civil, contented, whatever functional society and culture is to say, uh, well, no, nobody can get in the way of anything anybody wants to say on these entirely new publishing platforms. You know, that's that's what I think. So I, you know, I mean, there, there, yes, there are. It wasn't a golden age, but you know, to my way of looking, saying just let it all fly is not the way. Is not creating a golden age now, nor is the, is is it the means to a future golden age. Before we wrap up, I want to talk a little about Spy Magazine. I think it's hard to overestimate the effect that Spy had on our culture, and it certainly had an effect on me. Uh, Spy was deeply cynical, but also playful. It was fun, indulgent. Uh, everything about the world was presented as entertainment. For me, the most memorable single thing you published, aside from the annual 100 Worst issues was a tournament of war that presented various armed conflicts like an NCAA tournament bracket. And I see you, you nodding, so you remember that. So the winners would advance to the next round. At the center was Afghanistan, which had dispatched Russia in the semis um, and should be going on to meet Vietnam. In reality, the U.S. went on to battle Afghanistan in another unsatisfying slog to complement its unsatisfying slog with Vietnam. Uh, what I like about the chart is that it's both a joke and serious in that empires battle one another and often what takes down an empire isn't so much another empire as supposedly backwards people that simply refuse to be conquered. But the bracket image also points to the seeds of what I find most troubling about the kind of discourse that's begun to take over in the 90s or that did begin to take over. This is the David Letterman or Daily Show style where everything is, is snark, where making fun of something substitutes for an argument, where everyone is hyper smart, but at the same time completely cynical and disinterested in any true intellectual depth and never charitable about anything. I want to give you a chance here to defend Spy's place in this slide into snark or provide your own take on whether the trend I'm pointing out is as ugly as I'm making it out to be? Well, I will say that in addition to a, a brilliant little joke, bit of humor like that, Spy also did indeed do uh, long essays. I think of the one long, really long essay I wrote and published in Spy myself with my friend Paul Rudnick about exactly the problem you're talking about. It was called the irony epidemic. And it was, it was a thoughtful, complicated, exploration of exactly what you're talking about is a automatic snark 
that we, have, we are now facing when this piece was written in 1989, a problem. Yes, it is, we said in that, in that issue of Spy Magazine. So, and we also did investigative pieces about murderers and political corruption and about Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and all kinds of things. So it was not, even though certainly inspired among other things by the David Letterman show and that sense that new, what was then new in the early eighties sensibility, this ironic sensibility, we did other things as well. So I, I, I don't plead guilty to uh, making no, making everybody take nothing seriously because in my view, Spy had a good balance of taking things seriously, but basically being a magazine that was about being funny and, and doing its job that way. As we were warning in that piece 31 years ago, is there a danger in like just shrugging and, and laughing at everything? Yeah, there is. And indeed, I, I see much of Donald Trump's success, what, the unfortunate way in which his, his whole MO as a, as a campaigner, as the president, as a rally leader, as a kind of uh, jokester, right? So I, I think he, he, in that way, is indeed an expression of that problem. I think, you know, some of the things, some of the, the media entities that are regarded as on the family tree uh, that had evolved out of spy, um, like Gawker, I, I had real problems with Gawker all as it was, as it existed. Now, and I think, again, not to be the old fogey saying, if you just didn't have the internet, everything would be okay. However, because you had the internet and the, the business model that an entity like Gawker required, that required you, them, one, to publish dozens of takes and stories a day to fill the maw and get clicks and make money, as opposed to Spy Magazine, which published 10 issues a year and could carefully burnish each thing it did and try to pick its targets correctly and so forth. But but is that a problem? Yeah. It is. Is it? Is it? You know, and and have been people saying that's a problem. This uh, everything is just irony. Everything is snark. Since the 1990s, yes, they have. I, you know, I, I would say in a certain sense, I don't think it's the major problem of our day. And indeed, I, I suspect that some of the constraints on discourse that you don't like, and and the the John Cusack idea of oh, 30% of the people are Nazis. There's no. That's none of that stuff. None of that, you know, excessive wokeness, and I'm now making quotation marks, or PC, and I'm making quotation marks, to the degree all those things are problems. That is not the result of too much irony, too much sense of humor, too much snark. It's the opposite, obviously. Well, that's an interesting take. I have to think about that. So it would be hard for me to draw an exact direct line from one to another, but I do think that there is a connection between the style that takes things never fully seriously, or is that willing to project a kind of funhouse mirror view of uh, someone else as connected in some way? And that may be a bit of a stretch. And there is something about particular mediums, you know, like Twitter, that seems to encourage people not to engage at an intellectual level, but instead to hold up a caricature, a straw man, a ridiculous image of the other and, you know, and make fun of that and mock that instead of saying what exactly is the argument that this person is making and can we just confront that head on and dispatch it in an intellectual way? Yeah, although I don't know what the golden age was when all attacks and 
and views of the other were dispassionate and complicated and reasoned. I mean, as I say, I'm not sure there's any golden age of that. And, and, and certainly there are many, many counterexamples in American history of that not being the case. And what you're suggesting anyway is that, ooh, the kind of jokey uh, aspect of Twitter and regarding other people in the rest of the world as cartoonish caricatures. On the other hand, you want no gatekeepers. So, you know, that's the problem, right? We There are things about our culture and it's coarsening depending on our point of view about what is coarse or not, at odds with our wish for freedom and no gatekeepers. And so how do you reconcile those two, those two wishes or those two right. values? For, for me, you do it with culture. And, and I think that maybe you would be in agreement with that, that the ultimate solution to kind of these problems or the, you know, the exaggerated way in uh, which we want to live in fantasy lands is to have a culture based in the appreciation of reality. On that, we're agreed. However, I would also say when you have, you have a complicating fact, which is, is not only these new media, which is to say the social media and the internet in general, which in so many respects are monopolies and they're, you know, like water, electricity, like pub public utilities, which of course for their entire existence have been heavily regulated in one way or another, not gatekeepered in the way we're talking about. I mean, nobody has ever said you can't say this on Bell Telephone, even though we own all the telephones in America. And yet it's not the New York Times or Breitbart or a conventional publishing platform. So what do you do? And and, and again, I, I don't have the answer. And, you know, I'm not saying that Mark Zuckerberg and uh, should hire the two of us to be the gatekeepers either, even though we'd be better than probably what they're doing. But I think it is an unsolved problem that, yes, we agree that it is the culture's responsibility. But when Facebook and Twitter become major pieces of the culture, what do you do? Is it still just a one by one, each of our personal efforts to try to plant the flag for the virtues of, of empirical reality? Surely that's part of it, but I, I'm not sure that's the whole thing given the power of this these, these new uh, media entities to distribute fantasy and falsehood. I think that is the question. What do you do in the face of these uh, highly powerful uh, monoliths? Uh, Kurt, thanks so much for coming on The Filter. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.